Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. For socialists, there's nothing more important than class struggle. And today, I'm very glad to welcome two people to Victor's Children to discuss class struggle today and tomorrow. From Calgary, Kate Jacobson, and from Toronto, John Clark. Would you like to introduce yourselves to the listeners? Maybe Kate first? Absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast, David. My name is Kate Jacobson. I live in Calgary, Alberta, where I am the host of a podcast called The Alberta Advantage, as well as working as a union organizer. Okay. And uh, I'm John Clark. And for 28 years, I was an organizer with the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty in Toronto, involved in the struggles of that organization. And for the last while, I've been the Packer Visitor in Social Justice at York University here in Toronto. All right. Thank you. So let's dive in and talk about class struggle. Because, you know, in Canada today, there are even lots of people on the left who don't understand class struggle the way that socialists like ourselves do. Um, I've even heard people uh, say that class struggle means to them, you know, that life's a struggle for poor people. Um, so how do you explain class struggle? What is it to you? So I think this is kind of a misunderstanding of the word struggle. It's not that life is hard or things are difficult for some people. And the meaning of the word struggle has really shifted over time and our society now, it basically means like getting through adversity or surviving something difficult. I don't think this is the right way of understanding the concept. So, you know, maybe instead of class struggle now, it would be easier if we said like class combat or class fight or class wrestling match, because the idea of class struggle is really about conflict. And for me, it gets at the fundamental fact of social relations that there is an antagonism in class society, there are different classes. Those classes have different interests and these interests are at odds with each other. So like you can't satisfy both groups at the same time. They're in conflict. And, and those two classes are that most people uh, don't own the assets that produce and reproduce life in our society. And instead they work for a wage doing the work of producing and reproducing life in our society. But those people, workers, basically have no say in what society looks like, how it is directed, who benefits from work, uh, how kind of the, the value they produce is allocated. And through work, you know, workers reproduce the conditions of daily life. We also produce an enormous surplus, but we don't get to decide how that shapes our society or shapes even like the nitty gritty of our own lives. So for me, class struggle is about who gets to control the way our society is organized and who benefits and how we allocate the benefits of the work we do. Yeah. Uh, yes. I mean, I of course agree with all of those sentiments and, uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, I, I think the, the thing I would, I would stress about, about the analysis of a class struggle is that it flows from the fact that the society we live in is is certainly class-based 
but between the classes there is an exploitative relationship that's that's what fundamentally defines this society more than anything there's uh, the exploitation of workers working class people by a capitalist class and that that really frames everything now attached to that is the fact that in some ways parallel to it but in other ways interwoven with that uh, that exploitative relationship is other forms of oppression that are that are really quite fundamental to this society and are interwoven with the class struggle primarily based on racial and gender oppression um and the whole point about about this situation is that 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 class struggle at some level or another is an inevitability in the society. It's an ongoing thing. Each and every day, in some way, every moment of the day, some working class person is resisting. Uh, even if it's a very, even if it's a, a futile act, even if it's the most individualized form of resistance, it's it's there. It's there potentially, and it's and it and it breaks out. Um, and uh, sometimes it reaches the level of organized, serious collective resistance. Sometimes it reaches the level of uh, explosive movements that shake the system to its foundations. And uh, there are even points at which it isn't a, no longer a question of resistance, but it's a question of actually challenging the, the ruling class in this society for power. And uh, if we're talking about socialism, that precisely is what we all live for. So this is a different way of thinking about class and class struggle than, in fact, I think the way most people on the left think about it in, in lots of ways. Why is that? What do you think explains the uh, different perspectives, the different politics when it comes to this on the left? Well, uh, I mean, I, I, I think that um, I, I think there are a number of problems. Um, I think people underestimate the capacity of working class people to resist. I think there are moods of pessimism that set in, particularly in a period like this, where uh, pessimism has some material basis, uh, where there have been defeats, where there are enormous difficulties. Uh, so I think people understate the uh, understate the, the reality of the class struggle. And I think also people um, sometimes have a rather narrow and even bureaucratic a notion of what the class struggle is. There was a discussion I was part of just a, a couple of days ago that where this point was made is that the main model that we deal with in terms of class struggle activities, the sort of the standard notion, is the form of collective bargaining that is associated with the the post-war the post-war deal that was made. Uh, and so struggle, other forms of working class struggle tend to be downgraded or even ignored. So that, for example, at the moment in Toronto, right out, outside of the workplace completely, you have working class tenants in poor racialized communities resisting mass evictions. That's very much part of the class struggle. The upsurge of resistance that, that broke out initially in the United States and internationally following the police murder of George Floyd last year. That was very much part of the class struggle. So so I think people people miss it because they have a very narrow, a very pessimistic or a very bureaucratic view of what the class struggle is. I also think that understanding the world we live in in terms of, of a conflict or an antagonism is quite uncomfortable for some people because 
it requires you to choose a side. You know, if you come to this understanding that there's fundamental conflict in our society, that we can't resolve things to where like both classes get what they want, you're sort of forced to make a decision about which side you're on. And we also live in a society that, you know, encourages people to think of problems in technical ways, like the idea that the issues that exist in our society are our technical ones that have like technical solutions. So like the reason work is bad and miserable is because there needs to be some kind of like new program that manages workflow or, you know, the reason there's not enough housing is because we need to build more of like a certain specific type of housing rather than what's actually going on is there's like a conflict and you can't resolve the contradictions with a technical problem. So like a great example of it that I, that I think about a lot living here in Alberta is sort of like pipelines, which is, you know, you can't live in a society where both Indigenous people have control over their like traditional territories and the ability to like make decisions about what projects happen in those territories. And at the same time, live in a society where like fossil capital is able to, you know, uh, strip mine the, the boreal forests and, and accumulate capital. Like those two things can't happen uh, at the same time. They're fundamentally opposed to each other. And that can be very uncomfortable for people because when you make that decision and that analysis of like, oh, this is the way our society is organized, you are kind of dispelling a lot of illusions about yourself, the future, the, the your place in society that like you might prefer to hold on to. Um, and I'm not trying to suggest that like, oh, by, by signing up to be like a socialist or, or to be against oppression or, or to fight for like working people, you're like going to be like miserable your entire life, that it's like a doomed struggle. Of course, you can lead a very rich and meaningful life with a broad range of like experiences and relationships and things. But when you like look at society and you're like, there's a fundamental conflict, this is the side I am on, it places you kind of into history, into a very specific story, into like a very specific project. And I think it forces us to take the decisions we make very, very seriously and, and the things we do. And I think for leftists specifically, I'm thinking here, that's difficult. You, you know, that is kind of a, a big decision and it really reframes the way you think about your entire life and it can become very all-encompassing. That's big for a lot of people. So clearly life is getting harder for many people in this society. This is not, not just with a pandemic. This has been happening for years before. Yet the level of class struggle in this society is quite low. How do we explain this? I mean, you're 100% right in like making this observation. You know, every few months I see a study that shows the rich are getting richer. Poverty is increasing. Household debt is increasing. I don't think you can really look at the material circumstances that are happening and say like, oh, things are getting better. Like we're really trending towards a more just and equitable world. Um, one of the reasons for this is that the organizations and institutions that historically organized and structured class struggle are relatively weak compared to other periods of history. I am referring um, to unions here as, as organizations in the global north that like historically were one of the, the major organizations that structure class struggle. Uh, John alluded to this earlier, but like there is a reason for this, which is in the post-war economy, governments in North America were faced with waves of strikes, 
growing worker militancy. And one of the ways they dealt with this was by giving labor relations a legal framework. In Canada, it's what's known as the RAND formula. It is the, U- the U.S. equivalent is, is something called the Taft-Hartley Act. And what this did is it largely made the most powerful weapons of organized labor illegal. So it means no wildcat strikes. Um, no solidarity or secondary strikes, no closed shops, and all of this is wrapped up in a very healthy dose of anti-communism. And it also put more emphasis on the role of unions in administering and negotiating collective agreements. This was seen as, you know, kind of like an acceptable long-term compromise for capitalists. In my opinion, it's actually a very interesting example of how the long-term interests of capitalism sometimes require you to do things against the short-term interests of capitalists or specific firms. Um, And and this was an acceptable compromise because it meant production wouldn't get disrupted by, by worker action and grievances workers had could be put on a predictable timeframe that is extremely bureaucratic, that is extremely disempowering, that is extremely individualizing and, and does not encourage workers to, to talk with each other about the, the collective problems that they face. Unfortunately, you know, this whole thing really had the long-term effect of, of depoliticizing working class life. And I don't want to suggest here that like unions are, are were at any point, you know, the only vehicle of, of working class life, but certainly they, they were like an absolutely like major part of it. And and now that unions, broadly speaking, are not fighting for an alternative political vision, they're not articulating what society might look like. Uh, instead of the way our society currently looks like, they're narrowly focused on like the next round of bargaining. Um, you know, like how do we fend off uh, X, Y, and Z attacks and just like protect the, the the things we've managed to hold on to? You know, that absolutely has a negative effect in terms of the way class struggle um, can be organized, particularly on and around uh, the workplace. Although certainly at no point in Canada were the majority of workers ever in unions. Yeah, I think uh, with Kate's remarks, we sort of start to get to the, the heart of things a bit here. Um, I mean, I, I, I think the, the decades that we've gone through um, that forms, you know, a major part of even my life and for many people is their lives is, is, has been one in which the, the deal that we've spoken about, the unspoken compromise of compartmentalized and contained struggles regulated by the state um, and only allowed to go so far, but with the quid pro quo being, uh, generally speaking, rising living standards and concessions being made, that, 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 that deal was sort of revoked by probably the late 1970s by the other side. And the concessions stopped coming, but the deal remained brokered so, so in that sense, we've played for an extended period of time, decades, perhaps, perhaps forty years or more. We've played by the rules of a dead deal, and that the results of that have been dreadful. I mean, predictably, the unions themselves have been fundamentally weakened. But it also means that there's a there's been a great deal of organisational uh, loss. It also means that there's been a great uh, a blow to people's consciousness and people's awareness and people's understanding of the situation. And there's been moods of pessimism and defeatism, and all those things have have flown uh, from that. And so I, I think 
I think we're in a situation now where outside of the workplace, we see upsurges, some of them incredibly powerful upsurges, but there's no, at this point, no basis to uh, to maintain any continuity. You get, you get upsurges and they die down and there's no, there's no organizational form left to keep those things together. Um, and so I think what we're looking for in this period, and we must remember that the pandemic and all the crises that are attached to it are really a major transformation of the situation. I, I think what we have is 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 now what we're what we what we look for uh, is really that kind of breakthrough development that has occurred at earlier times. So uh, you know we could look at the the rise of the CIO in North America as a as a new form of union organizing that made such an incredible difference. We certainly can't just replicate that. Um, but but that changed people overnight and it changed the nature of the struggle overnight and it was of enormous importance and i think what we're looking for is that kind of a development but, but i don't know how that develops but one thing is absolutely certain that we have to get away from limited compartmentalized and regulated struggle and rediscover the capacity for united uh, generalized forms of working class struggle and resistance that that link community struggles and workplace struggles together. Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the some of the things John said brought up for me uh, a point I think is really important is that there's so often a tendency to think of the post-war compromise that was brokered as like the natural form of capitalism and then the capitalism we're living under now as some kind of anomaly to this like post-war compromise. But that's actually the opposite of what's true. The post-war compromise is the anomaly. The form of capitalism we're living under now, like this is the, the regular uh, natural, if you will, I don't really like that word, um, form of capitalism. And I, I also think one of the really important things about neoliberalism, about the society we live under now, is that people are generally speaking very politically de-skilled um, because there are not a lot of like institutions. There are like really amazing like upsurges uh, of struggle, oftentimes very brave, very important, but uh, but because like they're not particularly like linked to one another, nor are there like institutions, a lot of people don't have the ability to like develop the political skills you need to like do this effectively. So, you know, how do you organize your building? How do you organize a blockade? How do you talk to your coworkers about like issues on the job? How do you organize a strike? You know, how do you blockade a railroad line? These are all like, uh, to a certain degree, like technical skills that I, 100% believe like every working class person has the capacity and the ability to develop. But if there aren't like, you know, people are just going to develop them magically uh, by like seeing injustice in society, that there are things you have to learn how to do and, and how to practice. And I don't know if there are necessarily like a lot of situations or places in our society right now where people have the ability to do that. And I think that really limits political struggle when there are these moments because we don't necessarily know how to take advantage of them in, in really serious ways. And that connects, I mean, the, what you just described is um, something that uh, Alan Sears in his book, The Next New Left, talks about as the, the, the withering of the infrastructure of dissent. You know, the, all those how-to things that you mentioned, Kate, like those, as you say, they're all things that any person can learn, but they have to be learned by people from other people, you know, through organizations, whether they be formal or informal organizations. And 
uh, we've had a, such a tremendous week. There was such a tremendous weakening in that post-war period and since of yeah. of those, um, which has meant it, you know it's been much more difficult for people to actually come together and engage in new forms of struggle in this period. Uh, yeah. It's one of the you know the key, key dilemmas I think that we face. If I could actually just say, uh, as, as you say, that it makes me think that, and in fact, a lot of the, a lot of what passes for organising skills that were learned in that early period are actually uh, at best irrelevant and sometimes decidedly counterproductive. Uh, so, so the the notion of you know, putting on a show and brokering a deal, uh, that that becomes. That becomes sadly irrelevant in a situation where the other side isn't taking prisoners and there's a much more relentless struggle going on. I remember being at a what I shall circumspectly refer to as a union function without without naming naming anything. But I remember being at this function where a group of visiting uh, Central American trade unionists came uh, to speak about uh, and, and they spoke about their struggles, but they spoke about the absolutely horrific levels of repression they'd faced at the hands of death squads and, and you know, horrible stuff. And some, uh, which I should also circumspectly call a union functionary, uh, got up and said something to the effect of, you know, it sounds like you people need some training. It sounds like uh, it sounds like you need to uh, understand how to do these kinds of things. And I thought to myself, I'm sorry, chum, but if they sent you down there, I mean, <laughs> it would be horrible to watch. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't stand a chance. You wouldn't last 10 minutes in that world. And uh, and uh, while we haven't reached the levels of horror that those uh, sisters and brothers were talking about, we're facing something much more relentless and much more serious than that individual is ever ready to deal with. So, you know, let's think about the fact then we've talked about how class struggle is inevitable. Um, but also, I think we, the three of us, would agree that class struggle is the key to defeating the attacks that we face, to winning improvements for people within capitalism, and ultimately to the possibility of breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to socialism. So, if class struggle is that important, what are the implications for socialists today? What do you think people should take away from this once we kind of really think about those truths? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think that the, um, I think the enormous, I think, first of all, I think we have to, we have to really focus on the, on the, on how much has changed with the, uh, with the pandemic crisis. Uh, I mean, it, it, there was already the, the sort of the, the more than a decade of, of so-called sluggish recovery was coming to an end. The the economy was turning down uh, in 2020 before anybody in Wuhan got sick, and 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 there is going to be levels of what the IMF is referring to as economic scarring that's going to be left after this crisis. There's going to be a really changed situation, and it's going to be quite incredible. Um, and I think. We're going to be dealing precisely because the level of the organized left is so low and because the mainstream organizations are so weak. We're going to be we're going to be dealing with a situation where where the possibility of really explosive developments taking place that, that contain within them all sorts of contradictions uh, that we weren't uh, that we weren't ready for is going to be is going to be part of the situation. And I, I mean, I the last thing I want to argue for is the stodgy vanguard model. Uh, 
but I do feel that political knowledge uh, and political analysis and the capacity to put forward generalized strategies and demands and such like is going to be of enormous importance. So I really think there is a role for a respectful but important socialist intervention in, 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 in the struggles that take place. I, I think one of the main implications for, for me, for socialists, is just reinforcing that we do not have like technical problems in our society. Um, and I mentioned this earlier, but like technical problems are like, how do we feed everyone? How do we run a healthcare system? How do we stop emitting greenhouse gases? And I want to be really clear. We know how to do all of these things. We have the technical know-how, the resources exist in our society to fix these problems. In fact, we could actually fix these problems pretty quickly if, if these resources were mobilized. And the implication for me about like class antagonism is that the problems our society faces are political problems. And by political, what I mean is that in order to resolve these crises, these crises, it means taking resources from people who currently own and profit from them and putting them to a much more useful and much more like democratic use and taking resources from people who are powerful, from people who run corporations and run our governments is very difficult to do. And it's inevitably like a political struggle. And I think liberals and often like uh, progressives, uh, many of them um, of this like technocratic bent are very preoccupied with maintaining the current social order. So like the current distribution of resources, but finding like the right set of like tweaks or programs or adjustments that kind of allow for like a slightly more tolerable social outcome or, you know, alleviate like the worst injustices and, and the worst like uh, burdens of capitalism in our society kind of shifting the problem around. And I think if you're a socialist, you have to kind of fundamentally reject this sort of vision for, for changing society, which is the like, let's tinker around the edges vision. Yeah, and if I could say based on that, I, I, I think that, uh, and I think it's it's entirely true that, that um, I mean, I, I've been used to, for most of my life, being in a situation where the idea of putting forward a concept of socialism was something where you were going to reach relative handfuls of people. Uh, there wasn't, uh, you know, you, you didn't expect to have a, you know, a massive stadium full of people who all believed in uh, in, in socialist ideas. Um, but I, I think we see a situation now where things are changing so incredibly fast that the possibility for that kind of real leap in social consciousness it really does exist. It's it's really there as a, as, as a distinct possibility. And I mean, even things like opinion surveys Bring get you the most incredible results. I saw an ECOS poll suggesting that 70% of people, this was a Canadian poll, 70% of people believe that fundamental changes were needed in Canadian society. Now that can mean a lot of different things. And I'm not suggesting that's uh, I'm not suggesting that means that 70% of people are developed socialists, very far from it. But that's that's an incredible, that's an incredible change in the way people feel. And similarly, when when the stuff, when the things happened with uh, with George, when when the developments after George Floyd. I mean, the polls were showing incredible levels of of support for abolitionist demands in terms of the uh, of the police. I mean, it's quite it's quite breathtaking. So, I mean, I think to be in a period where 
you struggle for immediate demands, you put forward socialist ideas, but you know they're not going to resonate on any enormous scale. I think we've, 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 we confront the possibility of what happens when suddenly everybody agrees with you? <laughs> what happens when you're suddenly in a situation where socialist ideas no longer are a tough sell, but socialist ideas actually correspond to people's life experiences and they're drawing those conclusions? How does that transform our, our own political practice and how does that transform the struggles of movements when people don't just want to get some immediate concessions when people really want to see in a very real way a different kind of society i think that's incredibly exciting i, I didn't I, I didn't expect things to change so fast in terms of what's happening with this this crisis that's uh, that's broken in the last while and i think with the challenges there that i i try to confront head on even though it's quite difficult to think through is that there's been this massive leap in like social consciousness, but there has not really been this like massive leap in, in corresponding like organization or, or ability to win demands. Um, and when I think through like 2020, there's so many varied forms of struggle that, that none of them really like accomplish their goals. You know, many cities in America that saw massive mobilizations and, and uprisings in support of the movement for black lives then had their city councils pass increases to the police budget later this year. You know, in, in February of, of 2020, we saw like mobilizations coast to coast in Canada in, in solidarity with the, with the Wet'suwet'en who were fighting, uh, you know, the CGL pipeline on their territory. And yet that pipeline is being built and, and people are facing very serious charges for participation in that those actions. We also saw the, the failure of, of the Bernie Sanders campaign in a, in a more like traditional electoral mode of, of challenging politics. So for me, it's like I'm looking at these things and I'm thinking, wow, like there is a leap in social consciousness. Clearly the will is there. People care about these things. They're thinking about these things. But like those are all three quite varied forms of, of social struggle, varied forms of like demands, and, and all of them were ultimately unsuccessful. You know, there was a massive wildcat strike in, in Alberta last year, um, which is pretty unprecedented for Alberta across like 51 hospitals and health centers. And yet the government didn't back off on its plans for, for healthcare privatization. So seeing like the, the failure in an immediate sense, obviously like long-term, I, I think all of these things will have massive ramifications um, is, is really challenging for me to think like, okay, there's a, there's a lot of things that aren't working. What are forms of struggle that, that are going to allow us to win? I don't have the answer to that, by the way. <laughs> Right. And I, I think there's also the question of, uh, you know, as this, you know, the, what's wrong and what needs to change becomes increasingly clear to large numbers of people, but they don't have the experience of self-activity. They don't have the experience of winning. In that period, people can have an increasingly sharp critique, but we don't have practice to test ideas against in the way that we that would be most helpful for actually allowing people to figure out what kinds of politics will take us forward and which politics won't. Um, so I think that's a, a real problem on the left, you know, that um, it's, of course, it's in many ways, certainly in my lifetime, it's never been easier to make the case that we need an alternative to capitalism. But uh, in a time when the level of struggle is so low, the idea that this is going to be an alternative based on, you know, or that we can only win through class struggle is a harder argument to make, a harder argument to win for, for people. Um, I guess just moving on, mindful of the time, um, I just want to mention something which was kind of alluded to a little bit earlier about how in recent years we've seen some mobilizations which get described as strikes, but which don't actually involve withdrawal of labor, or at least very little uh, withdrawal of labor. And the one that certainly stands out most for me, although it's not the only one, uh, was the global climate strike at the end of September of 2019. 
Would you say these are forms of class struggle? What's their relationship to class struggle? So I think in a sense, yes, especially when students don't go to school, Um, like the work that student climate strikers do, the work of like being a student is part of like reproducing workers in capitalist society. It's unpaid, but I do still think it's work. It's the work of reproducing humans as educated members of the workforce that's being interrupted. So I think it does fit the definition of, of a kind of class struggle. And I think there's, you know, more intense versions of, of student strikes like the Maple Spring or the Pont Arable in, in Quebec, which like Obviously, I would say that is certainly a form of class struggle. Um, with that said, though, and like not to knock or, or criticize the work that climate strikers are doing, I think it's great. It will probably like grow into something even greater. I do think the tendency of calling just like large marches strikes is not great. And this might just be because I'm kind of a crank, uh, but it really bothers me because for me as a strike is a coordinated refusal of labor, a coordinated refusal of uh, going to work and either reproducing uh, social life in the case of like teachers, hospital workers, or producing surplus value in the case of like, I don't know, um, um, grocery store workers um, and, until a set of demands are met. Like that's that's what a strike is. A, a bunch of people like going to a rally is or a demonstration is great. Like, like it's a great tactic. I've organized them. I've participated in them. I think there's a time and a place for them. But I also think that, that it is not a strike. Uh, it is a rally or a march. And, and I also think we should think about strategic prior, prioritization in our movements. Like what is the most effective form of resistance to capitalist accumulation? You know, I mentioned that the solidarity with like wet suetin from February of 2020. I, I think one of the reasons that that was so effective is because people in that movement were thinking very strategically about like, how do we block flows of capital? Like are we blocking like the entrance to the port in Vancouver? We're blocking like railroads, which like allow capital to, to flow around the country. Um, and, and that's very important, like that strategic edge uh, to what we do uh, as, as organizers and as people in the movement, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I think, um, I mean, yes, I think we should, we can't be promoting, you know, protest activity, as important as protest activity is in building things up, we can't promote that as 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 on a level with the strike there was even a situation in ontario a while back where people built online something they called the general strike which was a small protest at the ontario legislature which i think was a tactically an unfortunate way to present things um uh, i mean there are work there are struggles outside of the workplace that are not just uh, registering a protest but do actually have a real uh, consequence economically and in terms of political crisis for for the system we're confronting. Uh, the Wet'suwet'en struggle was absolutely the case in point. Uh, I mean that what that got at was the global supply chain. Right? I mean that's that's what it really that's what it really struck at. And there's an incredible power there. I looked into it at the time, and they've even got specialized security companies that deal with protecting their global supply chain. They know how vulnerable their their neoliberal supply system, uh, you know, actually is. Um, Blocking evictions, uh, if that can be done effectively, that has massive political and economic consequences for our class enemies. Uh, But having said all that, I don't think we can we can deny 
or, or can kid ourselves that we're going to build the kind of strength that we need without a capacity to actually withdraw labor from the workplace. I think that's going to be absolutely uh you know the the essential component of the uh, of the struggle and we do find ourselves we do find ourselves held back by precisely all the mechanisms of compromise and and the gatekeepers of that compromise and that's uh, that's that is for us a, a major problem um but perhaps that's in some ways precisely what this this period raises the possibility of and and we're talking in terms of possibilities the possibility of the defeat is also a possibility and i don't want to come across as some ridiculous groundless uh, optimist but but i think there's a possibility now that that the model of the compa- compartmentalized uh, struggles of workers within organizations that are most of the time demobilized and top down in terms of how they're run i think that becomes such an unviable structure in the present period that the possibility of actually challenging it with something much more uh dynamic democratic and uh, and, and militant is a real is a real possibility now none of us uh, pretend to have crystal balls uh, we cannot predict the future in any detail um, but that said, do you have any other thoughts about the future of class struggle in this society that uh, we haven't brought up yet that you think would be worth mentioning? I, I think it is. It really lies in the fact that, I mean, on the one hand, I don't think you can, uh, I don't think we want to, uh, the role of socialists, if it's to be a viable one, is not to be this sort of, uh, uh, you know, elitist preachy body that, uh, that that goes in and believes it has all the answers. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there isn't some value in a socialist analysis. And and I think we're we're in a situation now where the period we're in is going to be so incredibly incredibly volatile and so incredibly unpredictable that there's going to be a need to to intervene in 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 situations and in ways we hadn't we hadn't really anticipated um and i think and and i stress it i think many of the many of the struggles that break out are going to be highly contradictory with both reactionary and progressive elements all sort of mixed in together you know, I mean, this came up in a number. This comes up in a number of struggles that have taken place globally in the last while. Um, so the uh, the yellow vest struggle in uh, in France, for example, that that really there were people on the left who simply who simply denounced that as a far right uh, mobilization because unquestionably those people, very largely and very t- mainly white people from small smaller uh, centres that were participating. Yes, there were some uh, very unfortunate. Uh, you know things that were said in, and, and ideas that were put forward as part of the mix, but to dismiss that struggle as something that was just sort of uh, you know hostile uh, alien mobilisation was, I think, to miss the point entirely. I think the issue is to try to intervene in those kinds of things. And the other example that occurs to me that, that really expresses that is what's going in what's gone on in Hong Kong, where where you have this mobilization where unquestionably you have you know people waving union jacks and uh, stars and stripes and uh, and there's a section of the left that's ready to say oh well that's just you know just reactionary but you've got two million people in a city of seven million people taking to the streets uh, uh confronting this this neoliberal hell that's being created in the city that they live in and that that points to something that has immense possibilities but 
the need to intervene in those ways, in, in those kinds of situations in meaningful ways, I think is of enormous importance. I think that all trends point to things becoming more difficult, more entrenched, and, and more crisis prone. I think inequality and climate change are really only going to get worse, and that there are huge crises on the horizon. And the only way to get a favorable result is to engage in class struggle. And if class struggle does not occur, if we let these crises hit without contesting capitalism, without articulating a vision, a different vision for society, without fighting, we are probably looking at climate genocide paired with dystopian levels of inequality. And I think that is maybe a very like intense way of looking at it. And I'm certainly not suggesting that we should all just like become hedonists and like enjoy the rest of our lives and give up. But I, I think the scale of the problems we're facing are, are very high and, and very serious. And, you know, we should be honest with ourselves uh, about the odds and about uh, how much power our enemies have. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's enormously valuable. I mean, uh, I mean, think of just what just happened in Texas, right? uh, where you've got an effect of the polar vortex of, uh, of of climate change, but you have, first of all, dreadful weather, but then you have the the basic infrastructure collapsing, and the social and the physical infrastructure collapsing in the in in the face of that. And you know what could we have on the ground? What organisational forms could we have on the ground to respond in a situation like that? Because that kind of struggle for survival is going to be one of the defining features of the situation that we're moving into. I think. So I've got one last uh, issue that I'd like us to to talk about, um, which is that, you know, all those of us who are socialists, um, however, we like to think about the fact that we know a lot about history, if we have looked at history and whatever we participated in, we are ourselves influenced by the very, very low level of class struggle that we've had in this society in in recent years. Um, You know, certainly people, lots of socialists today uh, who've never experienced anything more than this very low level of class struggle, but even those of us who been through experiences like the days of action in Ontario, for example. Um, those, you know, that's quite a long time ago now. Um, and so I just wanted to close by asking if you have anything you'd like to share in terms of reflections on the way that we ourselves are shaped by the period that we have been living in and what that means going forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, like I was born in 1995. So like I was born in a world that like neoliberalism had already irrevocably changed. You know, you know, I was born in Wales by the time I was born, you know, the mines were closed. Like the great institutions of working class life had been, been completely broken. Like I was born uh, into that. And, and I do think that has, you, you know, shaped me in terms of trying to find out like why it was like the, the way that it was. Uh, and, and also like, I, I never experienced really like the height of like working class kind of like power or institutions. Um, so certainly I've experienced kind of like shadows or, or versions of it. You know, I, I think it is really different to experience those things firsthand. And that's because like most things, you know, you learn how to engage class struggle in class struggle by doing it. It takes practice. You know, you can certainly be inspired by history. You can read accounts from other people. But to me, class struggle is like iterative, like many other types of knowledge, which means it's best learned through repetition, uh, through actually doing it and coming from an era of, of relatively little class struggle. That can be intimidating. 
but like not to be really preachy, the solution is not to give up. Like any other skill, part of learning how to do it is trying and failing and being involved in some very cringe organizing projects from my personal experience uh, and trying and, you know, performing very badly and, and things going wrong. And that is worth doing, even if like the first few efforts don't work out as envisioned, because you really do learn a lot um, from these favor, from these failures. And I think my last sort of thought on this is that, you know, like as a Marxist, I do really fundamentally believe that like we participate in struggle to change things, but also that struggle changes us and, and the experience as an individual, like socialist of being disciplined to mass movements of doing things that scare me or, or that are hard um, or, or that I like don't really want to do because I know they're politically important and that other people are relying on me and that they're necessary. You know, I think that really changes you like as a person uh, and, and kind of molds you to being the type of person that can participate more effectively in class struggle. And then that doesn't always look like doing things that are scary. Like sometimes for me, I'm a very like loud, outspoken person. For me, sometimes being like disciplined by mass movements means like taking a step back and like letting other people do things maybe slightly less effectively than I would have done them myself or, or waiting when I really want to do something now until, until more people are, are ready to join us. And I think uh, that, kind of, that kind of shaping and, and molding is a really important part of socialist politics. I think in terms of socialists responding is, I mean, first of all, um, the situation probably is more dynamic and more incredible than we, than we, uh, than we recognize. I think, our, you know, so I think our own sort of uh, conservatism and failure to appreciate that is, is part of the, uh, is part of what we've got to grapple with. I think also we're going to be in a situation where the drawing of the kind of anti-capitalist conclusions that are necessary are going to be really at a premium. And I think we're going to have to take a very broad and a very um, a very non-sectarian view of, of, of trying to cooperate around uh, around trying to put forward those kinds of ideas and intervene in movements. So I think that's going to be essential. And the other thing I think is, is really important is that we can't settle for uh, half measures. Um, during the uh, the days of action that you mentioned, and I, I, I myself lived through that experience and participated in, in, in those struggles, um, there was a kind of a, I mean, all of a sudden you had a situation where this, I suppose the closest thing to Margaret Thatcher that Canada has seen is playing out in, in Ontario. And we've got this incredible, incredible amount of anger in society and people start to mobilise. And a movement is, co is called that, though it doesn't use the name, engages in de facto general strikes and mobilises on a huge, huge scale. Some of the largest demonstrations seen in this country, probably. Um, and, and yet the leadership vacillates the leadership doesn't ever articulate a clear strategy, a clear way forward in terms of what what intends what they intend to do with that struggle. Um, they don't set a clear plan to escalate the struggle to something decisive. Indeed, it's clear when they reach the point of shutting down Toronto, that's as far as they're prepared to go, and 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 the thing is called off. And there was and the the left was sort of reduced to standing at the back of the crowd chanting, "Let's shut down Ontario." But there was no actual there was no actual readiness to engage with that 
misleadership, which I think was an enormous uh, an enormous mistake. I think there should have been a clear. Uh, I mean, it may not have succeeded, but there should have been a clearly stated criticism of the inadequacies of what was happening, because there's a huge contradiction, in my view, in the days of action. They showed incredible working class power. People that think they were some ridiculous bureaucratic exercise are off the wall. It, they, they, they took hundreds of millions of dollars away from the capitalist class and they created a political crisis and they had a real effect. But at the same time, they they didn't reach their potential by any manner of means they could have been so much more than they were and so we can't this time if 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 there's a something comparable happens that is reluctantly called by by the bureaucratic apparatus we can't be grateful for that we've got to demand more and we've got to fight for more well thank you both you both i think brought up some really important points for listeners to think about and i think it also, this discussion points to the need to have another discussion at some point um, about the state of the socialist left in this country, such as it is, and what do we do to actually strengthen it um, with a view of this, the struggles ahead. So thanks very much. Thank you so much. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to be on. Thanks. Thanks to both of you. Thanks for listening to Victor's Children. If you want to subscribe, you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Positive reviews are helpful, so feel free to leave one. Also, if you think this podcast is useful and know other people who might be interested in it, please let them know. I hope you'll listen again next month.